This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to London and to Galleons Reach, as this part of the River Thames is known. We are at the University of East London, which has 18,000 students of no less than 134 nationalities, which represents the cultural diversity in which this part of London rejoices. With two campuses, one in Stratford and one in Docklands, where we are for this programme, the university is at the heart of the industrial and creative shift to the east of the capital that anyone who comes to this part of London can easily witness, and it's vibrant just like our panel. Yasmin Alibi-Brown, who's won a host of awards for her political journalism, notably the coveted George Orwell Prize. Uh, She's written for almost all the broadsheets and now has a weekly column on the I newspaper. Clive Lewis used to work for BBC News and then joined the Army as an infantry officer in the Territorials, as they were then called. He did a four-month tour of duty in Afghanistan. He now serves in Jeremy Corbyn's team as Shadow Treasury Minister. Daniel Hannan is a Conservative MEP and a former director of the European Research Group, the ERG, whose luminaries are among Theresa May's bitterest Brexiteering critics. Peter Hennessy is Professor of Contemporary History at Queen Mary University of London, a co-founder, indeed, of that relatively new academic discipline. He, too, is a winner of the Orwell Prize, among many others. A member of the upper chamber, he's surely no peers as a scholar of both constitutional precedent and the ways of Whitehall. His desert island death wish to die in the National Archives. <laughs> Happily, I can see he's very much here for this edition of Any Questions. <laughs> and our first question, please. Claire Popham, should the police be armed in response to youth gang and knife crime? This is being proposed by the Met, where gang activity is likely and only not all the time. Clive Lewis. Um, I think when we come to this question, we have to look at why we're in a situation why the, where the police feel the need to have to be armed. And look, there is a situation now where we have Sajid Javid, who has just uh, buckled to his own backbenchers, uh, the right wing of his own party, who insisted that we keep 50 cal machine gun ammunition. This is the big ammunition that can punch through armoured vests, through tanks. He wanted that kept, they wanted that kept legal. That's still legal. That's the bill that's, that's, the bill that's been going through Parliament this week. They caved in to that. And when you look at what's been happening in our society in terms of mental health issues, in terms of children's services breaking down, probation not working, the criminal justice system in chaos, prisons in chaos, you begin to see a picture that's building up as to why our country is moving into the situation where you need armed police on our estates. Now, clearly, I understand there are armed criminals uh, who rove around this country, and we have an armed response force that works. But I think if we are routinely arming police officers in this manner to go into uh, those communities, and I have to ask the question, why is that happening? And you cannot just put it down simply to the fact that these criminals have suddenly armed themselves, are suddenly finding guns. That's not the case. It's about a lot, it's a lot, of, a lot of other issues surrounding this. Daniel Hannan. Well, one of the things that's distinguished our police for 200 years, ever since Robert Peel brought them into existence, is that we didn't have gendarmes. We didn't have 
an armed paramilitary force. The British copper is a citizen in uniform. He has no more powers than anybody else, except insofar as those powers are contingently and temporarily bestowed on him by a magistrate. So I think the general principle that we should be cautious about arming the police is a good one. There has, in general, been a decline in crime in this country, as in most of the world. Total crime rates are down by about a third since 2010, but there are blips. And one of the big blips is violent crime in London, which has gone in the other direction. And if a decision is made, an operational decision by the Met, that in order to contain particular kinds of horrific violence, all of us see it on the news, that in order to contain that kind of violence, there is a need to give the police additional protection, then I think we should support her. Yasmin Alibi Brown. I'm a bit torn. Um, uh, About two or three months ago, I went and talked to mums whose mainly sons had died. And if you talk to families, they are, of course, very emotionally involved, and they do want this. That was a surprising thing. But they also said, but we don't want this to turn into what happens in America, where particularly black men and mixed-race people get shot down for no good reason. But there, So I'm torn because I've talked to the mums who feel that there is now, and it's not just London actually, it's now in many other areas, it's drug connected and absolutely agree with Clive that the underlying problems we need to address. I think there needs to be much more consultation. The problem with this, this semi-decision is it was just kind of thrown out. And I don't want us to become, and I think uh, Daniel is right, the police here are very different, they're here by consent, I remember being on the march, a pro-European march, and some Americans being astonished that 700,000 people were out, and where were the police with their guns? Why were they not there? And I, I said, that's not who we are. So we should keep that, but f- there needs to be consultation. There were, uh, so far this year, 127 violent deaths in London. Last year, there were 116. But, in fact, violent crime, knife crime has gone up more rapidly, I think I'm correct in saying, in other parts of this country than in London itself. Peter Hennessy. I have great respect for Cressida Dick, the Commissioner of the Met. I think she has a very natural and very good sense of proportion in these things, and she's made a very persuasive case. But there's always a worry when there's a development like this that we're going through a one-way valve. It's very hard to see the way back, even if crime figures improve. I'm still shocked, being the, the age I am, that growing up in the Dixon of Doc Green era, uh, genuinely influenced by that as the self-image we had of our police. I'm just going to pause there. We've got a, quite a young audience <laughs> We have got a young audience. <laughs> who remembers Dixon of Doc Green? Would, oh, significant number. Who has no idea who Dixon of Doc Green was? A slightly larger number. Carry on, Peter. Well, he used to open every programme by saying, evening all, and saluting. That's how we remember him. Um, but, of course, society has changed. It's changed for the better in many ways. But there has been a percussive effect of increases of crime. It's, it's, not, it's not that it's a jagged line. It's not all one way. But I'm still shocked, being of my generation, to, to see in airports police with automatic weapons or in railway stations. I can see the reasons for them. And, indeed, in Parliament, we're very well protected by armed officers. And you never quite adapt to seeing them, and nor should you. It should be a regret 
of an appreciation of what they do and what they're there for, but also regret. Mm. And the trouble is that it'll become, there's a danger it'll creep, there'll be a creep of, of an armament, as it were. And it was always a matter of pride, as I think we were saying a moment ago, when Clive was saying that you'd come back from the United States and be terribly proud that British bobbies were not armed. And it's one part of the way we imagined ourselves. It was also the reluctance we had as a country for many, many years for having a standing army, that we've always been worried about authority and the use of power. But I do think Cressida Dick has got a point about the specific uh, dangers that she's addressing and the need for specific remedies, but I hope it doesn't spread. Thank you. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, Clive, the, the, the Home Secretary. He's also mm. encouraging um, a decision or quasi-decision of the, of the Met to increase stop and search which is a controversial issue in the belief mm. that in the hope that it will reduce the amount of knife crime and other violent crime. Do you think in this context that there is a good ground or not for increasing stop and search? Well, there's no evidence that random stop and search reduces violent crime. There's none whatsoever. Um, but what it can do is alienate the very people that you need to give you the intelligence and the information to have that kind of policing which stops you in the first place from needing those weapons. So I think you have to be very careful about what, strat what tactics you're going to use to try to reduce crime and make sure that you're not alienating the very people that you need to, uh, to, to police those communities. So um, I think that that's something that's already been discussed, something that's already been debated. But I think um, in many ways, if we are going to move towards a more heavy-handed uh, stop-and-search uh, program, then we know the communities that are likely to be disproportionately targeted. It's people that look like me, yeah. basically. Um, I'm uh, of mixed heritage. It's black people. It's people um, who fit a certain ethnic profile. And they are disproportionately, the evidence clearly shows that, disproportionately likely to be targeted and have a lower, in, in fact, a lower take-up, a lower low kind of conviction rates, because actually what we understand is many of the people being stopped are innocent, and that's wrong. Um, uh, bring, bring you in, Daniel, Daniel Hannan, on this. In fact, the government's own serious violence strategy dismisses any link between the use of stop and search and reduction in uh, knife crime, which the Home Secretary, current Home Secretary, nonetheless thinks is a good idea. What's your own view? As I understand it, the evidence is mixed on this. I mean, there was a, uh, a significant move away from stop and search from the 90s, but we're now dealing with something that is quite new in this country, this, this uh, upsurge in knife violence that we haven't known before. And if people are now... If the, if the coppers on the ground are saying that some proportionate increase in stop and search powers would lead to greater safety for Londoners then my guess is that it would have support from all Londoners, but especially from those in the communities that are most affected by violence. Quick thought, Yasmin, then we'll move on. Yeah, again, I think, you know, Clive is absolutely right. We've had a long history of, of black, and, black men in particular, and now increasingly Muslim men too, being stopped and searched. My question is this, what are we go we know what not to do. I don't think I've, I'm hearing what we can do. This is a tragedy. This is a huge tragedy for us and the families and our nation. And I'm really torn. I know Sadiq Khan is torn between the different solutions because there are these quite understandable reservations. But what are we going to do? Can I just get, I'm just going to bring in our, our questioner, Claire Poppen. Oh, uh, so I'm a, a children's social worker and I work in the local area with a number of young people affected by um, violence and knives and, and gangs. 
Um, but I would say, I mean, it was really interesting what the panel said, but I would say that from my perspective, it's a really unhelpful response to the symptoms, which doesn't do anything to really address the underlying causes. And why, why, do, you say, why do you say that with your first-hand experience? How do I see it? No, yes, why do you say it, it doesn't help deal with the problem? Um, well, I just think it will result in further bloodshed. Um, I think there should be many more preventative strategies, um, which would involve putting a lot more money into youth services, early help, all the support things that have just been you know, frittered away over the years. And then we're seeing the consequences, you know, 15 years later, you know, that go beyond party cycles, that there has to be a more sort of um, long-term solution rather than the kind of reactionary measures that we're looking at today. Thank you very much. Thoughts about that? Email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. You may want to have something to say in any answers after the Saturday edition of this programme. Julian Warwicker will be there. The number to ring is 03 700 100 444. Uh, and you can tweet using the hashtag BBCAQ and you can follow us at BBC Politics. Um, so please do. Our next. Susan Catton. Catastrophic delays and huge fare increases. Surely our rail services should be nationalised. Should the rail services be nationalised? <laughs> A lot of... The, 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 the 3.1% increase comes in in January on average, um, which, amongst other things, if you're not in London, will increase season tickets by £100 a year if you're travelling from Manchester to Liverpool, and there's much more, and obviously there's a lot of frustration. Um, what do you think about this? Daniel Hannan. The only thing worse than rail privatisation was rail nationalisation. I can't believe we've all forgotten what it was like in the days of British Rail. Look at the data. On any metric you like, things were worse. Punctuality was worse. Fewer passengers were carried. There was a, a more expense to the taxpayer... There were, by the way, more accidents. There were more fatalities on the railways. There is absolutely no measure by which things haven't improved. And the idea that a solution now is to charge everybody again, so at a time when our national finances are still recovering from the recession, that we would be looking to spend a huge sum of money so that everyone would then have to pay twice, first as taxpayers and then again as commuters. That this would be a solution? When has nationalisation ever delivered the promises that its exponents uh, initially make. Uh, it, this is a, a, a very good example of where a bad memory and a false sense of nostalgia is leading us into... So you error. just carry on with the level of incompetence, as most people see uh, it. I mean... Uh, No-one's responsible. Well... First, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm as annoyed as the rest of you when I miss a train. I only just made it here tonight because of huge delays uh, on the railway, and it always is annoying, therefore, when you think, why are we, we paying increases? It has to be said, by the way, the, the, this increase is under a formula that holds it in line with inflation, right? This is, it's, not a, uh, it's not a real terms increase. It's, it's, as it has been in recent years, it's an increase in line with the retail price index. But keep a sense of perspective. I just think it's a really bad argument in politics to say, because I have identified a flaw in X, Y must be better. Y was demonstrably, empirically worse. And I can't believe that we've all forgotten that as a country so quickly. Yasmin Elabai-Brown. 
So, this is what an ideological right-winger says. Privatization is always good. Nationalization is always bad. You're as ideological as me, because I think it's time to nationalize. It is absolutely time to nationalize the railways, because money has been made on the backs of passengers. And yes, you know, back in those days, people have changed, people have learned. And as the National Health Service shows... Modernization has taken place in the nationalized services, and that could happen in the railways. I find it extraordinary that at your end of the political spectrum, privatization is the solution for everything. So, so Yasmin, would, would you not. nationalize the airlines as well? Not. How far it's would you. Really not. But, okay, but, but are you going to follow through with your. If, it, if it's better to. Na- would you nationalize, you know, Thomas Cook again? Would you nationalize British Airways? Where, you know, where, where, I would, it, I would yeah. nationalize British Airways because it's a, it's a rubbish airline at the moment. <laughs> I would. Any representative from British Airways who wants to come to any answers? 03700 100444. Peter Hennessy. I'm not a great nationaliser, but I have to point out, Clive, I think the East Coast Main Line has done rather well when the states had to take it back. So a little control group shows that it is possible for the state to do things. We lost our nerve about the state doing things across the piece. And I've never been particularly ideological either way. But one of the problems was the way it was nationalised in the 1990s. It should have gone back to the old 1921 companies, the Great Western Railway, the London North Eastern, the London Midland and Scottish and so on. And we should never have separated track from company. So it was the way it was done. It was a huge, a huge own goal. Now, I know about all the deficits. I've, I've been writing the history of post-war Britain for a few years now, and I can't quite do it from memory, but I know those mounting deficits. But I have to say I did love the 1950s, those glorious steam locomotives. I even liked the limp sandwiches you've got on British Rail, which were a national joke. It was a staple of music hall humour, so it wasn't all terrible. But you can still get them in Northern Ireland, where it, it stayed nationalised and where the, the, the service is as unpunctual and the sandwiches are as bad as they used to be. It's like a little bit of BR preserved in aspect for the Why rest of us to see. Why don't we go on a trip together to Northern yeah. Ireland down memory lane? You and me, eh, Dan? Shadow Treasury <laughs> Minister, your turn. <laughs> um, let's, let's look at costs, first of all. What we said in the Labour Party is that you can move it back into public ownership by actually waiting till each franchise comes up and then moving it back under, under government control. So it's cost neutral. That's the first thing. It's not, it's not unaffordable. Just, just um, to elaborate for those who don't... So, so basically, it happens. what cost neutral means. So, in this so basically, the cost to the exchequer. I mean, we we obviously take on board the we take on board the actual assets themselves. But in, in terms of paying out to one of the, the, fran- the franchises, we don't have to because once the franchise comes up, we take it back into public ownership, and that's a rolling process. So that's the first thing. But look, there isn't just one model of public ownership. There are lots of models of public ownership, and we know that the train company that I use to get back and forth between Norwich is owned, but in part by a publicly owned. Railway company, in, railway operator in Holland, the national state operator, and they now own a share and are making, were making money from our railways. Um, so the issue here is that there are lots of different models, and we don't have to keep looking back to a model which may not have worked to the best of its ability back in the 1970s and so on. We can look to different models of ownership, ones which have perhaps the passengers, uh, the government. Uh, and the people who actually work on the rail all having a share in that. And I think this opens up a bigger debate about where in the 21st century we as a country want to go. What we've seen in this country is runaway, uh, runaway wealth from the very wealthiest, the 1% in this country, who increasingly earn a bigger and bigger share while the rest of us are left to scrabble around for a smaller pie. It's in part why we're, in the problem, we're having the problems we are with Brexit, because people don't feel that this country is working for that, them. That's, so that's, that's, this is a part of a bigger story about who actually earns 
the wealth of this country, the majority or the minority. But and you, I think but, that's what this but is about. But you're not uh, taking your broader point. You're not saying, are you, that if you taxed the top 1% more heavily, you would release resources to finance the nationalisation of the nation's infrastructure. Well, that, well, well actually, it's the top 5%, which is in our, which is in our economic, which is in our manifesto. You're not saying that's policy. going to do... do that's no. What I'm saying is, this, let's actually have a complete rethink about who actually owns the, owns, owns the, 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 the ability to create wealth and that commonwealth, the commonwealth, that we should all have a part in, all have ownership of. We all contribute to our economy. We all, we all work in this economy. We all lose the trains. We all drink the water. We all breathe the air. We should all have a say or have a part of that. That's what just, it's about. Just come back way of looking for at the moment. have never been tried anywhere. Right? Every time that the state ends up owning the majority of the means of production, there is an economic collapse. And by the way, there's almost always a, a collapse of liberty at the same time because you find that the only way that you can enforce that level of so, socialism so Daniel, is with I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. Community energy. This, and this is the thing. We're entering into the 21st century. New technologies. Community energy. We know that energy in the future will be decentralised. It can also be democratic. We can all have a share because wind farms, solar energy, solar batteries, and the batteries that can store that energy, it can be done at a local area. Your whole community could have access to that solar power. You could have a return from that. It doesn't have to be controlled by either a big state operator or by a private company. We can all have a share in that. This is what the difference that technology and change in the 21st century will mean in so many areas. We do not have to have a model where the 1%, the very top, own everything. We can have a different vision, a different model, where all of us have a real share in our country's future and prosperity. And that's what we're Let me bring you back briefly to to, to this question. The train (coughs) companies, and I think there is some objective evidence, that say that there's more investment going into the railways than there's been for since sliced bread was invented, however long it is, a long time, and that they put 98% of their profits back into the railway improvement, reconstruction, etc., and only take 2% for shareholders out of profit. Well, first of all, it's subsidised by us as well, the taxpayer, and also by people who pay these fares through the nodes above inflation every year. These are the people, the audience here, me and you are the people who are also paying for the rail, so let's, let's keep that quite clear, but yeah, yeah sure. Okay. Um, a couple of tweets here. Um, I can't believe those fares are going up again. And are cities outside London getting more stations and more connections for the extra money? And then, um, I can travel 250 miles on French national railways for £9, always with a seat. Quick comment Because the French that. taxpayer is paying your ticket. I mean, that's yeah. the trade-off, right? That's great. It's society. Well, it's great, it's great tra- when you're travelling in France, right? Hang on. It's great when you're travelling in France. That, that, that's, that's, a, that's a big question, just one simple question. We must move on. Should the user of the service pay or should the taxpayer pay? Clive. Um, well, by making those artificial divisions, we're all taxpayers and we can all be users of a service. So, I mean, I think it's an artificial, it's, it's an artificial division. Actually, we're part of a society, part of an economy. And I think what we've seen over the last 40 years is where we've all been hived off and siloed. You have this, you're over there, we'll earn this, we'll own this, and we'll take the money from it. That is actually, I think, actually, you can have something a little bit That is the opposite of the truth. The the magic of a free market system is that it makes us all connect with each other. There's no such thing as a free market. There is no such thing as a free market. Tell me one free market, Daniel. Tell me any revolutionary the way that people. Two at once can't be heard, so we'll bring in one quiet, still voice briefly before we move on. Peter Henderson. That's very kind, Jonathan. I do think that we get over-ideological about it. I don't think a railroad is a road to serfdom. I know you're a great fan of Friedrich von Hayek. 
and his classic book, but I really don't think that wears Dan. But what, what I really think we need to do is to have a mixed economy approach like the continental Europeans have as a mixture of state investment and private investment. We are the most ideological nation in the world, and it's very odd, really, because we're the most pragmatic and mature political society in the world. Yet on certain matters, we, we polarise madly. And you've just seen it. I don't think it was ideology. When we moved from having a state-run economy in the 70s to having a broadly free market one in the 80s, we went from being the slowest-growing country in Europe to being the fastest-growing country. It was a completely pragmatic... Any answers? Any answers? 03700-100444. We will go to our next, please. Francis Chiwarido. Is there a chance of us jumping out of a plane without a parachute at all? (laughs) We are very close to City Airport here, but I imagine you're not talking about that, but about uh, we know what. Um, is, is Theresa May's deal going to lead us potentially to out of the plane without a parachute? Uh, Yasmin by brown <laughs> Oh, dear God. I'd tell you one thing, one thing that's really shocking me at the moment. I'm a very passionate Remainer, and I will remain so and I will defend the EU till I die. But what I was brought up on in the colony, the British colony that I grew up in, was this idea that the British were amazingly, as Daniel has just said, or one of us has said, practical, pragmatic, super efficient, really good, once they decided what to do. I see this shambles, this complete collapse of any sense, any order, any intelligence, no evidence, just kind of like a, a blind faith has taken over. And, you know, when people believe, have blind faith, they don't listen to reason, they don't listen to arguments, they think the opposition is the devil incarnate. So I am in a, in a state of shock at the moment. What happened to this country they told us about in Kampala? <laughs> Peter Hensley, I introduced you at the beginning of the programme by saying that you had virtually no peer in the understanding of the workings of the Constitution and Parliament. Um, uh, you must look at this, whatever your views may be about it, with a, a degree of wonder that it could be like this. Baffled wonder, I have to confess. <laughs> what we're living through, and we have been since the result of the referendum in 2016, is the difficulty of reconciling two types of democracy, plebiscitary democracy, direct democracy, primary colours, questions, binary answers in the referendum, along with our much more familiar representative democracy. And I think part of the impulse of Mrs May's general election last year was to try and bring the result of the plebiscitary democracy within the proper orbit of the representative, and it didn't work didn't work. And we're still living with that because the votes the House of Commons are facing on their great showdown debate beginning next week is yet yet another attempt to try and reconcile the two, and it's very, very hard to do it. But having said all of that, I think there are several capital Q questions swirling one into the other, and they all feed off each other. The European question, obviously, which has reopened Britain's place in the world question, which we've been grappling since the Suez crisis of 56. It's reposed the Irish question in a new form. It's posing again the very union of the UK question, because if it goes wrong, if it's a tough Brexit, it could well fuel the pressures for separation in Scotland in a referendum in the 2020s. It's stress-testing our standard model of political parties, because left-right can't handle it. 
It has also raised again the condition of Britain question because the referendum threw up in stark relief the differences in life and life chances across the kingdom. And also Parliament, the question of Parliament being the grand inquest of the nation, that Parliament has to be central to the resolution of disputes. And that's what I hope we're going to see with a good procedure so that everybody feels they've had their moment on the floor of the House of Commons over the coming week and a half. Before I come to the the two politicians about what they think might happen, let me ask you again with your as it were, specialist hat on. For the purposes of argument, the deal, let us say, is turned down. It looks as though it's going to be. It'll be a miracle from the Prime Minister's point of view if it isn't turned down. Um, and it's turned down because Parliament says, we don't like it. If uh, uh, an amendment comes forward, we hear that Hilary Benn, for instance, has got an amendment which would suggest being closer to Norway as, a, as, a, as an option because he thinks that might, and apparently there's some cross-party support for this as well. What actually happens once that, um, once that deal is turned down? Well, again, we're in uncharted waters in terms of precedent. Hillary's amendment, as far as I can see it, as Jack Straw said on the Today programme this morning, is a way station for many people to get a second referendum. But what it will do is it will try and be the instrument for the House of Commons to express the one thing I think there is a majority for, which is that they don't want a hard Brexit. And secondly, and it gets a bit technical this, that under the Withdrawal Act, Mrs May will have, if she loses, 21 days to bring forward an alternative, or at least to bring a neutral motion to the House of Commons. And Hillary's amendment, I think, will be designed to enable that neutral motion, so-called, to be amendable. But we're all feeling our way Parliament is, has a genius for muddling through, but this is muddling through with a can, capital M and T. Can, can, you, can it, if, if, all, if the ma- powerful majority in Parliament says, to go back to the question, we, will not, we do not seek to jump out of the plane, anything is better than jumping out of the plane, although it has no binding force on the executive, given the system, can they actually, in your view, stop it? It won't be legally binding, as the clerk of the House of Commons has already told the House of Commons. But in terms of the political reality, it will be a, a very considerable weather changer. But again, given the volatility, the, the whole of party politics is molten. And Dan's party is in a terrible state, de- de- deeply pragmatic party. That's why it tends to win elections all the time, because it usually puts its appetite for power over ideology. Ideology is getting a big look in tonight, isn't it? But it's like a war of religion for many in your party, Dan, and it's not a pretty sight. And also Labour's split at least into three. The only people who are consistent are the Lib Dems, and nobody seems minded to listen to a word they say. (laughs) Dan Hannan, is there a chance of us jumping out of the plane without a parachute at all? If anyone wondered whether there was still such a thing as a British establishment... For the last two years, they've surely had any doubts blown away, right? 17.4 million people voted leave, biggest number who've ever voted for anything in British history. And from the moment the results were in, a group of civil servants, politicians, big banks, big businesses, worked to undermine the result, either by stopping Brexit happening altogether, or if it had to happen, by stopping it being successful. Now, for what it's worth... I think there is a very good case for finding a moderate kind of Brexit, a compromise. I would have been quite happy if we had been, uh, as Peter was saying, in a Norway-type situation, in other words, in the single market, outside the customs union, right? People say, well, that's half and half. Yeah, do you know what? That's pretty much how the country voted. Nothing wrong with doing that. But incredibly, what's now before the House of Commons is keeping the rubbish half and junking the good half. 
it would leave us outside the single market, but inside the customs union. I was actually, since Yasmin just mentioned growing up in Kampala, I was in Kampala last year talking to entrepreneurs in Uganda and from around East Africa about the opportunities that they wanted to have second with Empire. trade uh, in a post EU Britain, right? Because they're discriminated against in lots of ways by the EU's common agricultural policy, by a number of its tariffs and non-tariff barriers. We will end up, if we sign this deal, still in the customs union, which will mean that we have a far worse position than either if we'd left or if we'd stayed. So would you, we would be so subject would you, to 100% EU control of our trade policy with 0% and Dan, given that, given that, would you uh, prefer to stay inside the European well, Union, or would you so want if to I were, fall if off I the were cliff, listing were? my order of preferences, up at the top would be a Swiss-type uh, uh, market arrangement, then I'd come down through various more minimalist uh, kind of trade deals. Right at the bottom, in declining order, would be leaving with no deal at all, staying in, or accepting the deal currently before the House of Commons. And by the way... Well, you'd be it, no use to, in the House of Commons at all, would but, you? Well, you couldn't the, make up your mind on any of it. But the, the, quest, well, the, the, the question was, you know, what would happen? Are we going to be jumping out without a parachute? I mean, here's... here's my, anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen, not only don't listen to them on that question, but don't listen to anything else they ever say, right? But, but if, you, if you twist my arm uh, uh, and ask me to predict, here's what I reckon. I think if Parliament votes no to this deal, the chances are that Britain would go back, very possibly under a different PM, and would say, all right, if we can't accept the backstop, which is what all the fuss is about, are there at least some bits that are uncontroversial, like giving reciprocal rights to each other's citizens? And the EU would then have the choice between accepting those more practical, technical issues that I think everyone agrees are in the interests of all sides, or saying, no, we're going to junk any chance of an orderly Brexit for the sake of a backstop that London and Dublin and Brussels all say that they don't want to see and don't expect to see come into effect. Now, if that really were to happen, if the EU were to say, we are not prepared even to extend to you the same sorts of courtesies that any democracy has with its neighbours, you know, the, the same sort of basic cooperation among police and airlines and so on that we would have even with Russia, even with Iran, even with a, uh, an unfriendly state, then what they'd be saying is that using your constitutional right to withdraw as set out under the treaties is a more hostile act than sponsoring international terrorism or invading Ukraine. Now, I can't That's really imagine that those are the kinds of people we're dealing with. These countries, after all, are our friends and allies. And so I suspect a much likelier outcome is that a minimalist, slimmed-down version of the current withdrawal agreement. You were shaking your head what passes for violently just then, Peter. Well, I just thought the metaphors were a bit out of hand. I don't want to be unkind, but I thought that was a (laughs) classic example of a bit of inflammation. You have a wonderful way of speaking. It's a delight, actually, to be sitting next to a true political carnivore in full (laughs) two. Daniel, You're, you're a beautiful sight wherever you stand on this European question. Well, you're, you're, it's wonderful to behold. You're very kind. Right? Okay. <laughs> being, that's called being damned with great praise, <laughs> isn't it? Um, uh, uh, Clive Lewis, well, the I mean, jumping out of the pain, does that remain possible? Well, I just want to come back. Dan said 17.5 million people voted leave. I always, I, when I hear that, I wonder, I wonder to myself, what leave campaign was it? Was it a leave campaign where it said we can 
hermetically seal this country's borders after Brexit? Was it the Leave campaign where there was £350 million extra for the NHS? Was it the Leave campaign where we could still be members of the single market? Or was it the Leave campaign where we were taking back control? Which Leave campaign was it? And I think that's a valid question for people to ask because they were told all types of things about Hang what on. Leave meant. You don't at so, the moment. So, that, so just moment, having... Declare, having you are, you are, it is now coming to you in the House of Commons. This yeah. debate has been held repeatedly for... Yeah two years. In the House of Commons, question, Francis Chicksabiro's question, jumping out of the plane without a parachute at all, is that a chance? I don't think it is going to happen. I think the amendments that are going down from both the Labour Party and from Hillary Benn um, will basically, I think, if they're passed, mean that Parliament rejects uh, Theresa May's deal, which is nothing for jobs, nothing for security in this country, uh, nothing for workers' rights, nothing for the environment, fails on all of those, it will stop that and it will put the ball back in Parliament's court. And I think what we have to, what we have to understand is there's a fundamental principle here. And what Theresa May did when she came back after the referendum and she became the Prime Minister, she basically tried to force through a Brexit without any discussion, really, or any compromise with anyone else in this country. She had an opportunity to bring people together after the referendum to say, OK, let's work out how we solve this mess and actually honour the referendum but not destroy the economy in the process and build a lasting relationship with Europe. She had that opportunity, but she blew it. And she tried to do it behind closed doors with just the executive doing what they wanted to appease their hardline Brexiteers like Daniel. And this is why we're in the mess we're in now. So what this amendment is about is about Parliament having a proper, meaningful say over the future of one of the biggest decisions this country will ever make probably in the past 60 years. Put yourself back in the House of Commons, okay? Hillary Benn comes forward with an amendment. It offers, and there appears to be some cross-party support, and clearly from some in in your party in the House of Commons, um, the Norway option. It offers, effectively, membership of of the single market... Uh, it offers uh, freedom from the the, 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 the European Court. Well, There's that, some so, control so, over the, so, do, Are you tempted yourself so, by that option? So, that, so let's just run through what the actual sequence will be, the likely sequence will be. Theresa May's deal will be voted down. I imagine what will happen then is that there is almost inevitably going to be a confidence vote in her government. If she loses that, she then has 14 days to win another one. If she fails that... With the majority of one, with a government which is a minority administration, with a DUP currently sitting on their hands on the strike on the deal, that is not so far-fetched, and we could have a general election. You think that is what we're pushing? Clive, are you seriously saying? I don't hear many mm. members of your party mm. saying it. Do you seriously think that the that the Tory party in Parliament is going to behave like turkeys for Christmas? I and think kick it's out highly unlikely. In, in the, in the hope, of getting, well, hope of getting your of all, leader in. First of all, I think it's highly unlikely. But given if you had if you had asked me 18 months ago that we would be in the mess that we're in that Theresa May would have called a snap election and lost the majority that she had, that we'd be in the mess that we're in now, I would have said... Okay, now jump forward. We've so, got very limited so, time. So, jump yes. So, so jumping forward now, I think that there's a... We will, I think that what will likely happen if that deal, if Theresa May's deal is voted down, then what will happen is there will be a vote of confidence in her government. I think that will be the next stage before can, we get to anything else. Clive, I mean, it's great to hear all this stuff about we should all be working together and so on. And, of course, we should try and find a deal that the majority of the 52% and the majority of the 48% can live with. But I've got to ask, 
Why, up until February, Labour was against membership of the customs union on the impeccable grounds that, as Jeremy Corbyn put it, it is protectionist against developing countries, right? Why are you now arguing for this absolutely worst of all world scenario where you're outside the market and inside the customs union? I, I, I mean, I can't, I've never heard a Labour MP properly describe a, a good reason for that. And I, I, I mean, is it just because you don't like the word market and you do like the no, word No, because we're trying it? to solve the mess the Conservative Party's inflicted on this country. Okay. That's why we're no trying. No country that's why in Europe trying. wants that deal. Norway, Switzerland, they all think you're mad when you talk about joining the customs union. You've, 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 neither of you, you certainly haven't gone as far as you might have done in answering Francis Tixabira's question. Were you happy with your answers, Francis? Oh, yeah, to some extent. Uh, to some extent. Uh, what I don't understand is um, politicians even considering um, a no-deal Brexit scenario. I think it's just irresponsible. It's our future, our jobs, our Okay. Thank you. We will now go to our next. Okay, uh, Regina Everett. Should universities be allowed to fail regardless of their location and criticality to their local community? The universities are under great stress, as we know, and some of them are fast apparently running out of money and they're trying to get students, and as a result, many of them are offering unconditional places in order to get the numbers up. Should they be allowed to fail? Um, Professor Hennessy. Well, at risk of provoking my friend Dan again, I don't think the, market, I don't think the marketization of higher education should be, should be as far developed as it is. I think uh, learning is a republic of the intellect. It is a, it's a right for people if they can show the proper qualifications. And indeed, uh, it, it is one of those key elements in the well-being of a nation that should not be subject to market forces beyond a certain point. So I've been uneasy for many years with that. I'm also very struck about how privileged, I feel a bit guilty about this, my generation was, because we had all our fees paid and all our maintenance. And I know that wasn't sustainable once you got above about 30% of the age group going to college. It was about 7.5% when I went. But I do regret the, the degree to which the money factor has come in. And yet, realistically, of course, universities have to be well managed. They have to run themselves very carefully. But I will be very sad to see any of them to go to the wall. Uh, because the, the, uh, we, we, it should be a common bonding of a nation that you, you have. Learning is no, not to do with status. Our intellectual capacity has nothing to do with the status of the lines that bring us into this world, and privilege should have no place. I'm a part-time working professor at Middlesex University, and 90% of the students there are the first ever to get to university. And it is absolutely essential that we have this expanded uh, group of people experiencing and using their intelligence and uh, getting into uh, university education. I don't think it's a marketplace. I think it's interesting how the right wing of our uh, country finds money for wars, finds money to pay off the DUP for services not rendered, but cannot do the right thing for our younger generation. I really think that's wrong. Daniel. In 1960, 2% of school leavers went on to higher education. Now it's half, right? So to, to say that there's been no money, that there's been no results, is just preposterous. There is a, there's been an immense increase in the tertiary education sector. And part of the cost of that should be borne by the beneficiaries. I mean, when Peter says that it shouldn't be monetized at all, actually, 
On this one, he's, I think, being uncharacteristically unpragmatic. Right? It seems to me quite an odd thing to say that an 18-year-old school leaver should go to work and pay taxes so as to support in its entirety the cost of the education of those who stay on. What happens at the moment is that the taxpayer picks up part of the bill, but also the beneficiary picks up part of the bill, and that seems to me not unreasonable. The question was, should you be free to fail? Yeah, do you know, I think if a, if, if a, a growing and successful institute wants to take over a campus of ones that's, one that's struggling, that is, uh, but if a there's nothing wrong with that happening. If you are in a deprived area of a, a city, mm. not this university, but one, let us say, like this university, and it is... Uh, as some others we know have been, gets into such trouble that it goes becomes then bankrupt somebody, and left its, unless it's bailed out. What yeah, do you but do somebody, about that? somebody else will take over. There is no net decline. There is, in fact, uh, what was it you said at the beginning? There's 138 nationalities on, on this campus. There is an almost unlimited growth in demand from this country and from abroad for a UK You're education. You're keeping foreign students the, out. You, you want to keep well, foreign I, students no, I, out I, as I, well. I really don't, Yasmin. I've got to get I get silly. I'm going to bring in the... To try and liberalise visas. Shadow, Shadow Minister Clive Lewis. If it fails, someone else will take over. But I guess I, I, I hear what Daniel's saying, but then what's, what's hidden beneath that sentence is all the suffering that goes on as that university or that institution collapses, the degrees that aren't, that aren't taken, the loans that have been taken out that aren't paid back, the human cost for that market failure. And actually, education isn't a commodity to be sold and traded. It's a right. It's a public good. It's something we should all have access to. It benefits our economy. It benefits our society. It benefits us all. And not everything has to have a dollar sign, a pound sign oh, attached on, to it, Daniel. If we had a magic really, wand, we'd all doesn't. fund it. For, you know, but you're talking about taking billions in order to do this. Okay. Where is it going to come from? I'm going to just build in one Thanks, more Lord. question. Sally Palmer, are you addicted to your mobile phone? Yes, Manella by Brown. Yes. <laughs> you want Sadly. it all the time? All the time, are you? Well, I try Nonsense. not to, but it's actually an addiction. I, I have, um, I, as you spoke, I thought um, I haven't looked at my phone. And it's a madness. It's a madness. Um, Clive. Having an eight-month-old daughter that I'm trying to keep screen-free at the moment um, is, makes me realise just how addicted I am. And um, I think... I think it's shocking, actually, because obviously I don't want her to see the screen, but as soon as you turn that screen on and she looks at it, she's mesmerised mm. by it. So it's obviously hitting some part of the brain at a deep... Well, the, the, a deep they're a, they're all level. over the country, aren't they, now? Movements, charities and other organisations saying we've got to, particularly for younger children, as we've learnt what's happened with older children, saying um, to parents and to their offspring... Can you find a way of restricting your use of mobile phones or social media? 100%. And I'm sure not the only one that sat on a tube or a train and just taken a second yes. to look up and look around. We don't engage with each other. We don't look at each other. We're stuck in our phones. That must come at a cost. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a toddler and I have teenagers, and so I'm, I'm acutely aware of this. There have been other addictions, right? But this is the first device that has been designed to be addicted. Uh, addictive that you know for, for girls it tends to be social media for, for boys it tends to be gaming but in both cases the dopamine loops are programmed in which is something that we haven't brought, experienced brought in before. by your market economy and, and well and and the uh, in the same way that alcohol or cigarettes or anything okay. else right but the, the solution the solution I, I i think must be to find ways of bringing kids up 
in a way that they... There's no point in just depriving them, but in a way that they learn how to use it responsibly. Okay, I think our schools are way, way behind in doing this. Okay, and... Uh, very, yeah, I, I, I've been yes. fighting okay, the addiction. I've got myself down to one tweet a day now. <laughs> Peter. Very quickly, no, I'm not addicted, with one exception. I love news. I'm addicted to news. And so your mobile phone? I've got them on the mobile phone when, I, when I'm away from normal television or radio. I, no, radio 4, of course, is my primary source, but <laughs> mobile's the second. So that's what swells my dopamine, it is the news. <laughs> Thank you. And next week, we're going to be in Bromyard in Herefordshire, and there'll be a panel. I don't know yet who they are, but they'll be wonderful like this panel, I'm sure you will believe has also been. Um, from here, in the University of East London, don't forget any answers. Quick reminder of that number again, 03 700 100 444. Goodbye. Did you enjoy the podcast? Discover more music, radio and podcasts on BBC Sounds. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.